Well, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 16. We have been examining the farewell speech of our Lord. We are presently heading towards the middle of chapter 16, which consists of his last communication to his disciples delivered just hours before his crucifixion. And as he's on the verge of parting ways with them, Jesus seeks to console them and ready them for his imminent departure. And so I want to highlight some key aspects of this discourse as we near its conclusion, which happens right at the end of chapter 16. Jesus conveys the central message that he is on the brink of leaving them, stressing that for the time being they won't be able to accompany him to where he is going. He assures them that he is preparing a place for them in his father's house. Importantly, Jesus came to reveal the father, clarifying his mission to unveil God's nature in his plan of redemption. And then following his departure, he promises to send the Holy Spirit to be with them and within them. And it's through the indwelling Holy Spirit that both Jesus and the father will also be present with the disciples. This discourse profoundly reflects the Trinitarian nature of our God, and it showcases the intricate interplay between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and their work for the people of God. Additionally, Jesus mentions in chapter 13 and 14 that the Spirit will instruct them in all matters and bring to their recollection all of Jesus' teaching. And then as you transition to chapter 15, Jesus imparts teachings to his disciples concerning various connections that they have, their connection to him, their connection to one another, and then their connection to the world. Regarding their connection to him, they are likened to branches that are linked to a vine. Concerning their relationship with each other, Christ emphasizes the imperative that we love one another. And then lastly, concerning their association with the world, Jesus forewarns them that the world is going to hate them. And then as we move on to chapter 16, Jesus revisits the topic of the Holy Spirit's promise. And this is going to be the focus of our sermon this afternoon. Now, last week, Pastor Enro covered verses 5 through 11, and we're going to advance on to 12 uh, to 15 today. However, before we do that, I want to review what we have seen prior to verse 12. And this is going to overlap with some of what Pastor Enro has already observed. It just helps kind of keep everything in context and you see the flow of, of where this is going. So, let's read our text today. It's going to be John 16, and we're going to start in verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes that you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
concerning sin because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather in your presence now and open your word, may your Holy Spirit move among us and open our eyes and ears to the truth and grant us faith and repentance. Father, strengthen our faith, strengthen us to live out these truths that we will look at today. May our lives be a testament to your grace and mercy. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. In these verses that I just read, Jesus addresses three key points that he wants to convey to his disciples. The first point is the advantage of the Spirit for the disciples. And we see this from verse 4 to verse 7. Jesus notes in verse 4 that he did not mention these things earlier because he was presently with them. In this context, Jesus is referring to the preceding discussion about the world's hatred towards the disciples due to their association with him. And so in verse 4, there's a shift in focus as Jesus transitions from discussing the world's hostility towards the disciples to now revisiting the promise of the Holy Spirit. From the outset, Jesus was aware of what lay ahead for both himself and his followers. However, he hadn't elaborated much on it until now. And the reason for this silence was that up until this point, there was no need to get into any extensive discussion for it, as Jesus himself had been the primary focus of the world's hatred and opposition. But now, as Jesus prepares to leave his disciples, the dynamics are shifting. A significant change is coming for the disciples. They are now poised to become the targets of the world's hostility because Jesus is no longer with them. Up until this point, one can liken Jesus to a kind of protective barrier, shielding the disciples from the brunt of the world's opposition. However, this is now going to change with Jesus' departure. In fact, we witnessed this shift during Jesus' arrest, and we're going to get into the details of that later as we get into chapter 18, but just note that for now, this marks the final instance where Jesus acts as a shield for the disciples. In verses 8 and 9, when the soldiers come to apprehend Jesus, he declares, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men, referring to his disciples, go their way. And this was to fulfill the word which he had spoken of those whom he has given me, I lost not one. Jesus is deeply concerned here about safeguarding the disciples. But now with his imminent departure, he won't be able to provide this protection any longer. A significant change is unfolding. Until this point, Jesus remained unaffected. He couldn't be silenced or harmed because his appointed time had not yet arrived, as John repeatedly emphasizes. However, now a transformative moment is approaching. Jesus is about to leave the disciples 
And at that point, their adversaries ha will have the upper hand. Persecution is coming. Numerous challenges await them. And this leads to many questions and the need for guidance and direction. I want you to pause now and consider verse 5 for a moment. Jesus states, but now that I now that I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, this may seem puzzling, because if you remember, if you recall, Peter had already inquired about Jesus' destination. Back in chapter 13, near, near the beginning of the farewell discourse, Peter asked the Lord in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Now, while some commentators argue that verse 5 contradicts what we see back in verse 13, I don't believe that's the case at all. In chapter 14, verse 28, there's a crucial insight that helps clarify this situation. Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, when Jesus speaks of love in this context, he's not implying that the disciples don't love him at all. Instead, he's suggesting is that their love is flawed, self-centered. If they truly comprehended his relationship with the Father, the significance of his return to the Father, and if their love for him was well-informed and intelligent, rooted in a proper understanding of his person, work, and mission, their perspective would extend beyond their own concerns. Instead of solely dwelling on their sorrow and discomfort, they would have rejoiced that Jesus was returning to the Father. Well, I think a similar dynamic is here in chapter 16, verse 5. None of the disciples, including Peter, had inquired about Jesus' destination in the manner that he intended Yes, Peter had posed the question earlier, but his question wasn't born out of comprehension. Instead, Peter was taken aback and he was surprised by Jesus' statement about going away. His question didn't reflect a genuine understanding. And so the point Jesus is making here is that the disciples haven't fully grasped the true significance of his departure. Why? Verse 6 provides insight. Jesus explains, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Their focus is on themselves and their personal loss. Their grief has consumed them, hindering a deep understanding of Jesus' departure and more importantly, the benefits that it would bring. And yet the pattern in John's gospel repeats itself over and over. Christ must first undergo suffering and death before the arrival of of the Spirit. Refer to John 7 for a moment. Jesus is speaking about rivers of living water flowing from one's innermost being was referring to the Spirit as indicated in verse 39. Those who believed in him were destined to receive the Spirit, but at that point the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet undergone glorification. And understand the term glorified in the Gospel of John serves as code language for the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This theme repeats throughout the gospel. For instance, in John 12, 16, the disciples initially did not comprehend these matters, but upon Jesus being glorified, they remembered that these events were foretold of him and were done to him. 
In the same chapter, verse 23, Jesus declares that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, with this term consistently referring to the sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus in John's Gospel. Both John and Jesus interpret these pivotal events, the cross, the resurrection, and ascension, as instances of glorification, which in turn leads to the subsequent arrival of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's arrival has both an individual and a historical dimension. In Galatians 4.6, it is emphasized that the Spirit comes to individuals. There Paul says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, saying, Abba, Father. And additionally, there is a historical aspect to the coming of the Holy Spirit, as exemplified by events like Pentecost. At the present moment, the disciples are more preoccupied with their immediate concerns than with considering the broader scope of salvation history. Likewise, we often find ourselves caught up in our personal experiences, our emotions and circumstances, neglecting the broader picture of God's plan and history. Frequently, we interpret things based on our subjective feelings rather than placing ourselves within the context of objective, redemptive history and interpreting our lives in light of that greater story. It's like we're looking through the wrong end of a telescope. The disciples failed to comprehend why Jesus had to depart, and they weren't considering the necessity of it from a redemptive historical standpoint. And so Jesus clarifies in verse 7, affirming, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. To be explicit, Jesus is expressing that it is actually beneficial for the disciples that he leaves their presence. Why? Because in his absence, the helper, that is the parakletos, or the Holy Spirit will come to them. Jesus is returning to the Father, ascending to an exalted state, and entering the heavenly sanctuary to assume his position at the right hand of the Father, undertaking his high priestly ministry. This is Jesus's imminent course of action. And from this exalted and glorious position, he will then dispatch the Holy Spirit. Peter grasped this later when the Spirit granted him understanding. In Acts 2.33, Peter on the day of Pentecost proclaimed, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. However, at this current moment, here in John 16, the disciples had no comprehension of these events. If they had, their hearts wouldn't have been filled with sorrow. Now, I trust that you can discern the practical implications for us in our lives today. It underscores the importance that all of us as members of God's community should grasp the redemptive purposes that he's revealed in Scripture. This knowledge isn't reserved just for theologians for seminarians, for scholars, for those we might consider to be super-duper saints 
It is meant for every member of God's people to understand. We possess a valuable and precious revelation in Scripture, and it's crucial that we comprehend something about God's unfolding plan and purpose in history. So much of the grief and sorrow that is experienced here by the disciples was self-inflicted by their own ignorance because they did not understand the bigger picture. What relevance does the cross have for your everyday existence? What relevance does his resurrection have, his ascension? These things should not be foreign to you. You should know the answer to these things. And with God's assistance, we should aim to have more than a casual familiarity with these profound truths and realities of the gospel. And so our task is with God's help to perceive our lives in this world through the lens of Scripture, particularly through the lens of salvation history. <clears throat> you know, it's widely recognized that one effective way to exert control over people is by severing their connection to their history. If you make them forget their past, you can manipulate and control people. However, there's a group of people on earth that cannot afford to be disconnected from their history, and that is the people of God. For us, it's essential not to forget our rich history. This is a concern that Paul teaches, for example, and he addresses in places like Romans and Galatians. In dealing with the issues in the Galatian church, Paul in chapter 3 delves into the topic of the law, seeking to establish a connection between the church and the church and redemptive or salvation history. He does a similar strategy in Romans, illustrating an example of a believer in chapter 4, Abraham from the Old Testament. The purpose is to guide believers to think about their history and to link the events of their lives back to that historical context. Beloved, have you ever considered what an extraordinary blessing it is to be alive in this time and this hour? In God's providence, we find ourselves situated between two significant events of Jesus Christ. And please don't let the downers on social media pull you down with them. Because it happens. That's why I get so close every time to getting off Facebook. So I'm just so tired of the pessimism that I see on that platform. We truly are living in a thrilling time. Jesus has already come, he has brought about marvelous changes, and we eagerly anticipate his return. And living in this time becomes even more joyful when we can connect the events of our lives to God's overall plan and purpose. On the flip side, failing to establish this connection leaves us vulnerable to someone else's interpretation of the world and our role in it, which is what you see going on on Facebook. Without a proper worldview, someone is bound to offer one to you, attempting to shape your perspective and dictate your understanding of life. But thankfully, we are free from such influence thanks to the guidance provided to us by the Scripture. Scripture instructs us on how to perceive the world and our place within His creation. And without this proper worldview, 
if we can't without this proper worldview we can't link our if we can't link our daily experiences to the events of redemptive history god in turn will not hold a rightful place in our hearts and our lives consequently consequently we won't fully engage in the work of god's kingdom you just sit around lazy and fussy and whiny and complaining about everything. If we are unable to place our lives within the framework of salvation history, we also won't appreciate the significance of the local church. And sadly, there's only a small number of professing Christians out there that genuinely value and hold the local church in high regard. Without aligning our lives with God's purposes, we may experience sorrow when joy is appropriate, and vice versa. The disciples initially couldn't recognize the immense advantage in Jesus' departure, and likewise, we may struggle to discern the benefits of certain situations. And so consider your own reflection on what God is accomplishing globally and his redemptive purposes. Does it provide you with hope in the face of seemingly hopeless circumstances in our world? Life's experiences might occasionally appear bleak, but our hope persists because of God's ongoing work. And so this constitutes the first aspect that Jesus addresses, the advantage of the Spirit to the disciples. And after discussing this, he now moves on to a second aspect. He then discusses the Holy Spirit's role in the world, elaborating on this in verses 8 through 11. In verse 8, Jesus explains that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Regarding sin, this conviction arises because of the world's disbelief in Jesus. Concerning righteousness, the conviction stems from Jesus going to the Father, becoming unseen by the world. And in terms of judgment, the conviction is prompted by the ruler of this world already being judged. Now, the structure of these verses is pretty straightforward. Jesus makes a general statement in verse 8, and then he follows it with explanations in verses 9 through 11. In the general statement, Jesus asserts that the Spirit will convict the world. And this connects to his earlier teachings about the world's hatred towards his disciples. To provide some context, let's revisit chapter 15, specifically verse 18. There, Jesus acknowledges that the world harbors hatred toward the disciples. The following verses, such as verse 19, continue to address the actions of the world. And this theme continues in the following chapters, like chapter 16, where Jesus mentions that the world will make the disciples outcast, verse 2, by kicking them out of the synagogues and will carry out certain actions against them, verse 3, like seeking to kill them. The consistent use of terms like they and them makes it evident that Jesus is referring to the same group of people, the world. The world in this context is identified as the group that will harbor animosity and hatred towards the disciples. He then mentions that the Spirit will convict the world. Now, let's explore the meaning of the word convict. 
This term appears about a dozen and a half times in the New Testament, carrying various shades of meaning. But in this context, it likely implies exposing, refuting, or correcting. The Spirit will do this by presenting convincing arguments, essentially making a case for something or persuading someone. A parallel can be drawn from Ephesians 5, where the word is used in verse 11. There, Paul instructs believers not to engage in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them using the same term, convict. The concept involves calling out, revealing, and making these deeds known. However, it goes beyond just mere identification. It also includes the idea of reproving or correcting these deeds. In the case of the Spirit convicting the world, it extends beyond exposing the world's sin. The Spirit goes further by persuading and convincing, even bringing about a sense of shame through compelling arguments. Recall the term helper. It's translated as helper or paraclete. It can also be rendered as advocate. This translation is evident in 1 John 2, 1, where it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. There, John writes, if anyone sins, we have an advocate, that is a paracletus, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus serves as our advocate. And in chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus mentions sending another advocate. And here, the Holy Spirit becomes another advocate. Think of Jesus as our defense attorney, our advocate in the heavenly court. The Spirit, on the other hand, can be likened to the chief prosecutor, not against us, but against the world. And while the world may persecute the Spirit, the Spirit in turn convicts the world of at least three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is the assertion in verse 8. Jesus then proceeds to elaborate on each point in verses 9 through 11, offering a specific item and then providing the rationale for it. Take note of verse 9 in, chapter, uh, in John chapter 16. It addresses sin with the reason provided, because they, did, they do not believe in me. If the individuals comprised in the world believed in Jesus, they would trust him for salvation, acknowledge their guilt and sin. They would turn to him for redemption. However, their lack of belief in Jesus leaves them guilty, condemned, and sinful. The Holy Spirit proclaims and to some extent persuades the world of its sin and guilt. Now, there are differing perspectives on whether this conviction of sin, as mentioned here, always leads to salvation. Some commentators assert that these verses describe the regular work of the Holy Spirit in saving sinners, while others argue that the convicting work falls short of salvation. But I'm inclined to think that it's both. In certain cases, the Spirit's persuasive and convicting work regarding sin results in a person's salvation, while in others it may not. John Calvin wrote, under the term world are, I think, included not only those who would be truly converted to Christ, but hypocrites and reprobates. For there are two ways in which the Spirit convinces men by the preaching of the gospel. Some are moved in good earnest so as to bow down willingly and to assent willingly to the judgment by which they are condemned. Others, though they are convinced of guilt and cannot escape, yet do not sincerely yield or submit themselves to the authority and jurisdiction of the Holy Spirit, 
But on the contrary, being subdued, they groan inwardly, and being overwhelmed with confusion, still do not cease to cherish obstinacy within their hearts. Consider a couple examples from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter delivers this remarkable sermon, and in the conclusion, in verse 36, he declares, Let all the house of Israel know, therefore know for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what was their response in verse 37? The response was that those who heard were cut to the heart. And they asked Peter and the apostles, what should they do? Leading to the salvation of many. So you see, this is an example where the Spirit's conviction regarding sin results in salvation. But now turn to Acts chapter 6 with Stephen. In verse 8, it's noted that Stephen, full of grace and power, performed wonders and signs among the people. However, when some men from the synagogue of the freedmen argued with him in verse 10, they couldn't cope with the wisdom and spirit with which he spoke. The spirit was at work convicting, but it didn't lead to their salvation. At the end of chapter 7, after Stephen presented his defense for the Christian faith, he concluded in verse 51 by accusing them of always resisting the Holy Spirit. The outcome in verse 57 was that they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed at him with one impulse. And so this illustrates that while sometimes the work of the Spirit brings salvation, at other times it does not. Returning to John 16, now let's examine the second aspect mentioned in verse 10, righteousness. The verse states, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Similar to the world's misconceptions about sin, the world also holds misguided notions about righteousness. And so the Spirit comes to correct those misconceptions, revealing the true nature of righteousness. You know, people often have distorted views of themselves. And the Spirit's work involves convicting them of both their sin and their misconceptions about righteousness. Beloved, deep within the human heart, there's a tendency towards self-righteousness. It's not easy for anyone to welcome the revelation of their flaws or acknowledge when they're wrong. When was the last time someone confronted you about something sinful you were doing and you greatly appreciated and enjoyed the confrontation? We usually don't. When it comes to righteousness, people often hold a positive view of themselves. However, the Bible challenges this notion. We see this in Isaiah 64, 6, where it states that all our righteous deeds are likened to filthy garments. And the metaphor there implies something even more repulsive than just merely dirty clothing. Confronting the idea that even our best efforts are considered filthy rags in the sight of a holy God can be challenging. Some might resist this notion Demissing it as extreme or fanatical. On the other hand, there are many who readily embrace it without hesitation. They understand it at their very best, their righteous deeds fall short and are deemed filthy in God's sight. 
Perhaps there's someone here today who disagrees with this. You believe that your righteous deeds are not like filthy garments. You might take pride in certain aspects of yourself and believe that you will be acceptable to God based on your own merits. However, understand that if that is your response, then understand that this places you within that category of the world and it puts you at enmity with God. And then we have the third aspect in verse 11, which pertains to judgment. The world's understanding of sin and righteousness is distorted, and the same applies to its perception of judgment, both subjectively and objectively. The Spirit works to convict the world of its erroneous judgment, emphasizing Jesus' victory over the ruler of this world. This ruler, as identified in previous passages, chapter 12 and chapter 14, is Satan. Jesus' judgments are trustworthy as he only speaks what he hears from the Father, ensuring righteousness in his judgments. But in contrast, Satan is condemned due to Jesus' triumph on the cross, and those who share moral alignment with Satan will face similar condemnation. Beloved, every individual by default is morally connected to Satan, existing in a moral, ethical, and spiritual relationship with him. Remember what we saw back in chapter 8. In verse 42, Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me. Now I want you to consider those words personally. Could Jesus utter these words to you? He continues, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And now reflect on whether Jesus would say to you, why do you not understand what I'm saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Jesus continues describing the devil as a murderer and a liar, contrasting his nature with the truth spoken by Jesus. If Jesus were to ask you, why do you not believe me? Or, why do you, or, or if Jesus were to ask, why do you not believe me? Or why do you not receive my words? Would these questions be directed at you? In verse 47, Jesus states, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Could Jesus pose such questions to you? pointing out that your lack of understanding and reception of his words is because you are not of God, but of your father, the devil. And so the spirit's role in the world, according to Jesus, involves convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And this convicting work may lead to salvation in some, while in others it may not. The critical question for us here today is whether you have been convict, convinced of sin, righteousness, and judgment by the Spirit. And if so, how have you responded to this conviction? Have you embraced it or, or have you rejected the Word of God? Have you recognized that even your best deeds appear as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God? 
Is your only hope for acceptance found not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Have you acknowledged that without his salvation, there is no way to save yourself? It's the Spirit's work to make these truths evident to you. Enduring the Spirit's conviction, whether through preaching, reading the Word, or prayer, may you not resist or turn away, but instead embrace the reality of your condition before Jesus. Look to Him alone for salvation, recognizing that without Him, there simply is no hope. And now finally, after having explored the advantage of the Spirit for the disciples and His Spirit's function in the world, let us now consider that third and final point, uh, <clears throat> the role of the Spirit in the church. And this we see in verses 12 through 15. Verse 12 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He speaks or hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare to you all that the Father is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Jesus still has many profound teachings to give to His disciples. But their capacity to observe more at this moment is limited. He acknowledges that there is much more they need to grasp, but due to their current state, they can't fully comprehend it yet. However, Jesus reassures them that in due course, the understanding will come. For now, he's conveyed enough, and the conclusion of this discourse is near. In the imminent absence of Jesus, the Spirit will take on the role of the teacher. And this marks the fifth and final instance of the term paraclete in this discourse. Just to recap, there were two occurrences in chapter 14 and one in chapter 15, and now two more here in chapter 16. Certainly, the Spirit of Truth will play a dynamic role not only in the world, but also within the church. And Jesus outlines three specific functions that the Spirit will perform in the church. First, he will guide the disciples into a comprehensive understanding of all truth. Secondly, the Spirit will reveal and make known what is yet to come. And thirdly, the Spirit's work will be centered on glorifying Jesus. These are the three key responsibilities that the Spirit will fulfill in the church. Now again, as you might expect, there are debates among commentators on how to understand these words. Some restrict these words exclusively to the apostles, arguing that these statements apply only to them. On the other hand, there's some commentators that extend the application to include all believers. Well, in line with many aspects of this discourse, I believe that these words primarily apply to the apostles, but there is also a secondary application for the rest of us. The direct and primary application of these words is to the apostles. 
Remember, referring back to chapter 14, specifically verse 26, we see a clear reference to the apostles. There it states, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Well, this statement cannot be said of any of us because Jesus has not spoken directly to any of us. Additionally, in chapter 15, verse 27, Jesus affirms, And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Again, this is specifically addressing the apostles, as none of us in this room today have been with Jesus from the beginning. The focus on the apostles continues in chapter 16, verse 12, where Jesus states, And I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. The Spirit's role in leading the apostles into all truth involves both inspiration, which would result in the New Testament that we now currently possess, and illumination, combining these two aspects to fulfill this crucial function. And we can affirm secondarily that all believers will be led into all truth, but we must do so with certain qualifications. First, it's crucial to recognize that the primary focus of this passage is not on the illumination that believers in every age will experience through the Holy Spirit, even though such a thing is true in reality. Here, Jesus is specifically making a promise to the apostles at that time. Another qualification is that this process of being led into all truth, that is for us today, will occur through illumination by the Spirit, but not through inspiration, as was the case for the apostles. While they were inspired and illumined, we as believers in following generations are illumined by the Spirit, but we're not inspired in the same way. And then a final qualification is that any illumination that we experience today will always be connected to the Word. This is a very important point. This promise does not involve special guidance on matters like where you should live, where you should work, or to whom you should marry. The Spirit is not going to directly speak to you concerning those matters. And it's crucial to avoid approaching the ministry and work of the Spirit with expectations of some mystical direction. Instead, the leading of the Spirit, as emphasized in the New Testament, is always ethical and not mystical. God interacts with us directly through the Word. And the Spirit's work is mediated through the Word. Reminds me of a, someone just posted, I see this every once in a while on Facebook. Facebook can be good for some things. It's a meme. Some guy says, I want to hear the voice of God. And the guy says, well, read your Bible. He says, well, I want to hear it audibly. He said, well, read the Bible out loud. Beloved, that's how God interacts with us directly through the word. And the spirit's work is mediated through that word. The spirit helps believers understand and illuminate the word providing insight into the teaching, teachings, actions, and purposes of Jesus, especially regarding his death, resurrection, and ascension, as well as the plan and purpose 
of God in history. It's essential to emphasize that the Spirit never provides illumination apart from the written word. The Spirit speaks only what he hears, receiving from the Son, who in turn receives from the Father, highlighting the interconnected role of the Trinity in guiding disciples into all truth. Secondly, the Spirit also reveals what is to come in verse 13. This likely refers to the Spirit's role in inspiring, interpreting, and illuminating events associated with the life and ministry of Jesus, as well as the broader plan of God. It doesn't necessarily imply a supernatural disclosure of events far off into the future, as some might interpret it as prophecy. Instead, it seems to emphasize the Spirit's work in shedding light on the events in the life of Jesus, interpreting their significance and inspiring a deeper understanding of the larger plans and purposes of God. For instance, Paul demonstrated remarkable insight into the mystery of Christ in Ephesians 3, serving as an example of the Spirit disclosing what is to come. And then finally, in verses 14 and 15, the Spirit glorifies Jesus, or we could say he magnifies Christ. The Spirit's role is to exalt and emphasize Christ. Just as the Son brought glory to the Father, as we saw in John 7, and we will see in John 17, the Spirit brings glory to the Son. There's a beautiful unity among the three persons of the Trinity, all aligned in purpose and action. And the Spirit's revelation to the disciples is nothing less than the manifestation of the Father through the Son, illustrating the unity within the divine persons. In essence, the Spirit's ministry in the church boils down to making Christ and his teachings known. The Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself. Instead, he directs focus, our focus towards the Lord Jesus Christ and ensures his truths are understood. And this has profound implications for us today and our spiritual walk, emphasizing that we cannot truly comprehend God or Jesus without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this emphasizes also that among any things, we must be cautious not to grieve the Holy Spirit in our lives. When you turn to Ephesians 4.30, Paul instructs us, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Understanding how we might grieve the Spirit is crucial. As we go on to see in verse 31, Paul urges us to discard bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice from our lives. The presence of these negative things in our relationships and our personal conduct may indicate that we are, to some degree and extent, causing grief to the Holy Spirit. Conversely, verse 32 provides a positive course of action. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So therefore, we should actively avoid grieving the Holy Spirit 
by eliminating negative attitudes and actions from our lives. And on a positive note, we are encouraged to, to seek being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, how can you discern if you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, one indicator is the presence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. As outlined in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. To the extent that these are evident in your life, suggest that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Additionally, another measure involves considering the Spirit's primary role, which is to reveal and make known Christ. And therefore, I pose the question to you today. Are you deepening your understanding of Jesus? The focus is not on remaining stagnant, but on actively learning and growing in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about your life. Assess whether you are advancing in your knowledge of Christ, progressing in personal communion with him, and growing in love for him. Evaluate if your appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ is either expanding or diminishing. Reflect on whether there are days when you scarcely think of him at all, or if you regularly contemplate his sacrificial work on the cross for your salvation. Consider whether your thoughts impact your mindset, emotions, and actions. Are you advancing in the faith? and becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. The degree to which the fruit of the Spirit is manifested in your life and your proximity to Christ can indicate whether or not you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so may the Spirit of God prompt self-examination, encouraging us to reflect on on our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Spirit's purpose to reveal Christ. And if that is His purpose, can we affirm that this is happening in our lives? Let us pray that this is so and that we can acknowledge by God's grace the Spirit's ongoing work in making Christ known to us every day. Let's pray.